the uh, Beatitudes. This uh, excellent summary of the blessings that come to God's people through the Lord Jesus, even people who suffer in this life and are often persecuted. From verse 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And of course, the prophet Micah was one of those prophets who was persecuted by many of his own people in Judah, in Jerusalem. And we read as we continue with the series on the book of Micah from chapter 7, passage that once again comes back to this theme of God chastising his people. We've looked at that before. And then also God vindicating his people, which we've also seen in this book before, but we learn a little bit more about it in Micah 7. And it's good to remember as we read this and hear about this that um, we just sang about it as well. And uh, we sang that God is faithful when he chastens his people. And we will be considering some of that as well. Chapter 7, verses 9 to 13. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
We acknowledge that you are the one who embodies and you are the one who defines wisdom. And in your wisdom you have shared what we may know of it in Scripture. And you enable us also to lay hold of it by the work of your Spirit. Father, will you help us to receive that wisdom from your word again today as we consider this portion of it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, well, we've talked about, as I mentioned, we've talked about vindication before, the fact that God vindicates his people. And uh, I have given a definition of it before, but in case uh, some of you may have forgotten uh, what the word means or uh, don't, uh, you're not familiar with that word, uh, vindication means being proven right or being cleared of suspicion when you're accused of something. And we, we all like to be vindicated when we're falsely accused. Uh, you can take any hot topic for that matter, something like uh, climate change, and people on both sides will want to be vindicated. They'll want history to prove them right, uh, whether that is on one side uh, proven that uh, the carbon footprint of mankind is destroying the world, or on the other hand, uh, the other view proven that uh, man's contribution to these things is relatively insignificant after all. We all like to be vindicated on such things. What do you hope for, though, when you are suffering from the Lord's hand of chastisement? As Christians, whether we're chastised, being chastised or chastened or not, uh, whatever situation we find ourselves in, We still hope for vindication. We hope to be vindicated even if something happens to us because of our sins, some chastisement. And so we find in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11, the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of the godly sorrow, the repentance of the Corinthian congregation, and that that sorrow had led them to seek their own vindication. Uh, Meaning that there was an earnestness there among the Corinthians, that their name would be cleared. But how can we be proven right? And how can we be cleared when we've actually been doing wrong? Which is the case when we're being chastised for our sins. Well, we look at this under two headings to help us see more, and as I mentioned, we've looked at some of this before in other passages in this book, but more about how to process this experience of being chastened by the Lord. Two headings. First of all, chastisement due to sin. And secondly, chastisement replaced by vindication. Chastisement due to sin and then replaced with vindication. I believe I I said this before on one other occasion that we do, I, I do want to acknowledge that it can be really difficult to know in anyone's situation where you suffer whether you are being chastised due to some particular sin in your life or whether it's simply part of your general training by God, by the God who knows how much more training we always need no matter what stage we're in in our lives. Or for that matter, whether we're suffering because we're caught up in a society that sometimes may receive temporal punishments from the Lord. 
And it can be really hard to know which of those situations is involved in our suffering. But when we look at the, the overall process of it, without trying to pin it down too much to the specific reasons, we find that the scripture is very positive about this, about this kind of experience. John 10 verse 2, the Lord prunes every branch that bears fruit. If you are a believer, you are therefore a fruit bearer. If you are a fruit bearer, then you are a person being pruned. And the scripture speaks positively of that. Or we could think of Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines the son whom he loves. And uh, the word disciplines there refers to parental training and correction with that, that bit of that hard edge to it. And uh, that's the kind of language that's used here, but that's put very positively. It's, if you are someone whom God loves, then you can expect to be disciplined or trained in that way. It's easy enough to tell if the discipline is for a specific wrongdoing, if, as in Bible times, the Lord tells you that it is, or in the case of church discipline, where the Lord has given certain commands to the church as to how that is to be applied, but it's not so easy to know these things in the general life of the believer today. But we should be in no doubt that it, it does occur. In Micah's situation, there was no doubt because the, the Lord had made it crystal clear to them that the things that were happening to them and their suffering was due to their sins. Micah was part of that nation that was in that state. And therefore, he was caught up in their collective chastisement. And we find him here in this passage confessing his own sin, perhaps doing so on behalf of his people, though he uses the term, I, I have sinned. Perhaps doing it to some extent on behalf of his people, perhaps because not many of them would do it. But uh, whether that's the case or not, whether it's on their behalf or just for himself, it would certainly be true, what he says in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Uh, at the very least, he is part of an ungodly society, but he is also a man who has personally sinned himself and is conscious of those sins. We, otherwise, we might think that it's unfair for a godly man to have to suffer such things. But uh, Micah is acknowledging that he personally has sinned himself and there's no basis for him to complain of God's injustice. Moreover, as God's people, we need to remember that we never get what we deserve from him by way of chastisement or punishment. Because the Lord Jesus, he himself got what we deserve. And that's why we never get the full weight of, God, of what we deserve from God, which is his wrath, the full weight of his wrath for our sins. That's what we personally deserve. And so if we find ourselves suffering, say for example in New Zealand, if a situation uh, could be proven to be the case that God sent calamity upon this nation because of the sins of the nation, then our attitude still ought to be Whatever suffering I go through as part of that, I'm still going through less than what I deserve for my own sins. And I still have no right to complain about God's injustice and to say, well, that's not fair. I'm one of God's people. 
I'm a godly person and the rest of the nation may not be, but it's not fair that I suffer along with them. No, we're still getting less than what we deserve. And our attitude ought to be along those lines, to recognise and say to ourselves, I also have sinned against the Lord. Who am I to get on my high horse and start complaining about his justice? And this is, of course, a way of thinking about things that actually applies to all of these scenarios. It applies to the scenario where we suffer because of some chastisement for sins that we have committed, particular things. It applies to when we're caught up in a society that is receiving temporal judgments from God. And it applies to whatever pain we might go through as God trains us through the school of hard knocks. It applies, that mentality applies to all of those situations. Second observation about Micah's response to this situation is that we are not only to refrain from complaining when chastisement commences, but to refrain from complaining as long as it may last. Many of God's people can cope with pain and loss when it first comes, but begin to complain when the process continues. And in one way, that's understandable. A quick, sharp jab of pain is often easier to bear than a long-term, a prolonged, dull ache. And that's true with emotional pain as it is with physical pain. But the spiritual problems come if we start to think that it is unfair for this situation to keep going on and on and on. When we start to think that somehow it is only right and proper if I have to go through such things that it should only be for a very short period of time. Micah says he will bear the indignation of the Lord until he pleads my case and he executes justice for me. Verse 9. And what a great attitude that is. That's the right attitude, both regarding the fact and also the length of chastisement. How long is fair? As long as the Lord wants. He is the one who decides when it begins, and he is the one who decides when it ends. And it is necessary for it to be as long as he wants it to be, either as a display of his justice and holiness and glory or to teach us some lesson we learn or to cause us to wake up to our sins for whatever reason it is it's his wisdom that determines the length of it and that is right and good and proper and if we can just lay hold of those two truths that your sin first your sin means that you never have a right to complain about chastisement or getting caught up in the uh, temporal judgments that God may bring upon this society, or getting, uh, having to deal with that general training that God gives to his people. And the second thing, that God's wisdom and justice and love for his people means that there is never a right to complain about the duration of the suffering. And, and if we accept those two principles, then I believe that we are in the best place to begin learning from such experiences and to benefit from them as opposed to making ourselves and other people around us very miserable and perhaps even provoking the Lord.
Now, in verse 9, Micah states his acceptance of the chastisement that was falling upon Judah because of their sins. And he accepts the Lord's right to end it only when he sees fit. But he clearly does expect it to end. And not only that, he expects it to be replaced with something else. To end and then to be replaced with vindication. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord until he pleads my cause and executes justice for me. Second and final point, chastisement replaced with vindication. And you see, this is really good news. This is really good news for believers, not for the reprobate, but it is good news for believers that chastisement, like all suffering, is always replaced with vindication. Not just with the end of chastisement, but with its opposite. Experience of the unbeliever is very different. The experience of the unbeliever is temporal punishment as a foretaste of what, and a warning of what is to come, but ameliorated by common grace, but then followed by eternal punishment with no vindication, no end to suffering, and no amelioration of that condition by common grace. Vindication, according to the text, comes in two ways. First, it comes by the downfall of our enemies. And then the other aspect of this, that it comes by the salvation of the Lord. So the downfall of enemies and the salvation and deliverance of God's people. In verse 10, Micah says, my enemy will see it. In other words, he will see what the Lord does for me and he will see this vindication of his people. And shame will cover her. Note the gender, her. Uh, Micah is not being PC here. He's not swapping back and forth between him and her, he and she, in order to avoid being accused of being a sexist. That's not why he uses the language in this way. It's been suggested that the word her is used here because he's referring to the cities, particularly the capital cities of the enemy, because like a lot of languages, uh, a lot of ancient languages, the um, words have gender. They're masculine or feminine or sometimes neuter. And uh, in this case, the Hebrew word for city is feminine. And we often speak of nations that way too, as uh, he or she, depending on which culture you're in. So those times were no different. So that's the situation, and that's the contrast referring to the downfall of the enemies of Judah, that the time will come when those who are now suffering this chastisement will be, uh, they will be, they will be able to see, and they know that this will happen, that their enemies will be covered with shame. In the context, the city that is immediately in view is most likely Nineveh. And that is especially likely because remember the taunts of the Assyrians. Remember their army commander outside when the siege was laid outside Jerusalem and their army commander called out to them, don't say that the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. 2 Chronicles 32, 9 forward, Isaiah 36. But Micah 7 verse 10 answers that 
and says, shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? This really worked out historically. And as you know, this is a common delusion of those who see God's people suffer for any of the reasons we've been talking about. They take it as evidence that there is no God. They mock both the Lord and his people. But the vindication of the Lord means that he will deal with those who react in this way. He will deal with those who mock not only his people, but in doing so also mock him. It's vindication because God's people eventually will be seen to be the ones who have the right of it by turning to their God. At the end of the process, therefore, Micah sees that his eyes will look from a distance at Nineveh and see her trampled down like mud in the street. Babylon will fare similarly, uh, looking further ahead in time from Micah's time. Mud in the street, trampled down. Think of Jerusalem. Jerusalem that rejected the Lord Jesus, mocked him and mocked his disciples and his apostles and likewise Jerusalem the enemies of God's people at that time, mud in the street. And it's the same ultimately for all who oppose God and his people. And this is such a, a, a universal principle that we find in verse 13 that Micah says the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. This is a, a truth, it is a principle that carries through, right through history, from the time of the fall to the end of the earth. It's one that reaches its terminus in the final judgment. And that's why the book of Revelation depicts in visions the fall of Babylon the Great and the, and the desolation of Armageddon and so forth, the desolation of all nations who oppose not only the Lord but also his people. But then there is also this other aspect of vindication. And it's, it's in this that we see the gospel in the Old Testament in this book. The gospel according to Micah. The salvation that comes from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Foreshadowed already here in this book. In Micah 7 verse 8, the prophet says that his enemy should not rejoice over his fall... Because even though he's dwelling in darkness, the darkness of invasion and such things, even though he's dwelling in darkness for a time, the Lord was still a light for him. And then in verse 9 he adds that when the Lord pleads his case and executes justice for him, then the Lord will bring him out into the light. And when that happens, he will see the righteousness of the Lord. He's looking forward there, perhaps without even knowing all of the details, ultimately looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus, who is our light and who is our righteousness and who is our vindication. The one who pleads our case. He's doing it even now at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And he will do it on the last day so that we will be found not guilty, so that we will be found innocent, so that we will be declared vindicated. Not because of us and our self-defence, 
but because his case, the case of the Lord Jesus, his case is our case. His defence is our defence and his vindication is our vindication. This answers the question at the start. How can sinners who are chastised because of their own sins ever be vindicated? It is because we, by faith, are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Vindication is not us proving that we are right. It is not us proving, I didn't do anything, that which we love to say even when we have done something. It's not a matter of that. It is Christ proving his right and his righteousness, which he has given to us as a free gift. Just as the vindication, the defense of the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 11, their defense and their vindication was not their own goodness. It wasn't them saying, we didn't do anything wrong. Their vindication, their eagerness for their own vindication, that was actually based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was them saying that they were longing that they would be declared right in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a result of that conviction that then led them to say that they would therefore seek his help all the more to deal with the sins that were evident in their lives. And that's the way it should be, that when we lay hold of this truth of vindication, that we don't use that as some kind of excuse for spiritual apathy and say, well, I don't need to be worried about anything that I've done wrong because eventually God is going to say, you've done nothing wrong. Not that, but exactly the opposite effect in us, that it fills us with all the more gratitude and zeal for confessing our sins and seeking the help of God to resist those sins. This vindication, this demonstration that God's people have the right of it, this vindication through his grace is demonstrated by God in other ways in this passage. He demonstrates that his people have the right of it by the downfall of their enemies, as I mentioned. Ultimately, Satan, sin, our own sin included, death, but also all of those human allies who seek to destroy the church as they serve Satan, often without realising it. But in addition to that, the Lord demonstrates his vindication of his people by, by uplifting them, by restoring them, by renewing them. And the text mentions two areas in which that is demonstrated. It's demonstrated in this life to some extent, but even more so at the end. Those two areas are first, that it will be, be a day for building your walls, verse 11. How did God show that he really was with his people? Even though they, they were surrounded eventually by the Babylonians and the city was destroyed, how did he demonstrate that they were not wrong to call out to, to their Lord? How did he vindicate them? How did he demonstrate that? By rebuild, rebuild, rebuilding the walls that had a, an outworking in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But interestingly, the word for walls that is used here is not the normal word for city walls, though it can be used that way. It's a word that also refers to 
hedges that were used to fence vineyards and uh, other plots of land that the people had where they grew things. And uh, perhaps then this is an allusion to the fact that God's people are the Lord's vineyard. And when the hedges are torn down, doing damage to the vineyard within, allowing wild animals or robbers to come in and so forth, that God shows this vindication of his people by again enclosing them in his protective care. The vineyard connected to the vine, the Lord Jesus, which again begins to flourish in connection with him. But either way, a promise of restoration and renewal of the church that is so often attacked by enemies and so often has needed to be chastised. Second, the Lord demonstrates it by a day of expansion. Verse 12. How does God demonstrate that his people had the right of it when they turned to him against what the leader of the Assyrian army said when they, especially through Hezekiah, turned to their God? How does he demonstrate that by not only preserving a remnant of his people, but even adding to those people, expanding them, even bringing people into his covenant community from those very nations that had attacked them and that brought down the walls of Jerusalem eventually? Speaking here especially of the Gentile inclusion. And uh, verse 12 mentions that, that the very nations God used to chastise his people, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, nations from, they will come into God's people from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. And that's still happening today. The mustard seed is still growing into a great tree, sheltering many nations. And that will also be seen on the last day when the whole church will be gathered together with people from all of those nations, and they will inherit, we will inherit the whole earth, a new heavens and a new earth. A visible demonstration of the Lord's vindication. And the very opposite of the tearing down of the walls and the hedges and the desolation of the promised land and the depopulation of Israel when they were chastised. Remember these things whenever you feel that the Lord's hand is heavy upon you. Remember that it's far less than you deserve. Remember that it will last as long as it is needed and that is good and right and proper. But remember that it will be replaced with the downfall of all who in wickedness oppose you because they hate God. And that it will be replaced with the exact opposite of suffering, with vindication, with justice, with restoration, with renewal, with righteousness, with an even greater, experiences, uh, greater experience of the Lord's blessings than you see and experience in this life. No wonder the psalmist in Psalm 43, after asking God to vindicate him and plead his cause uh, note the similarity of language here so that psalm uses almost exactly the same language that Micah uses or vice versa so after praying to God to vindicate him and plead his case he concludes why are you in despair O my soul and why are you disturbed within me hope in God for I shall again praise him, 
The help of my countenance and my God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, whether we suffer because you are training us in the school of hard knocks, or whether it is because of chastisement for some particular sin, or whether it is because of the society that we live in, will you help us to accept your right to do so for as long as you see fit? Father, do not let us complain. Do not let us become unduly impatient or bitter. Help us to remember that deliverance will come and vindication will come and the return of the blessings and that it will come for Christ's sake according to your promise to those who wait upon you and call upon your name for mercy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Picture of the Vindicated people of God, robed in white, washed in Jesus' blood, holding palms of victory. Picture of the vindication of the last day in hymn 469. We'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. 469.
After the blessing is our doxology, we sing number 231 as we uh, hear this uh, pronouncement of God's blessing upon his people. It is uh, good to remember that uh, God is the God of peace. We may easily forget that at uh, times when we're suffering or when there are difficulties in our society, but he is the God of peace and he pronounces this, the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Amen.